You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, hobbits, and commanding a flock of angry yellow birds to assail your crush. This is season three and three quarters, episode three, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam. Hi, Carrie. It is the final of our three-part season three and three quarters. How are you feeling yeah, about is. that? It's been fun. I really like this, actually. The I think I think five might be the high point of my enjoyment of a discussion on Harry Potter. So we are talking today about Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. That is book number six. My favorite book. It is your. Is it your favorite? Okay, that's my good favorite to book know. of the latter half. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. It's just so it's so fun. I actually did a little rundown. Uh, quickly with my spouse, Leah, uh, while we were eating lunch earlier today, um, putting my, my Harry Potter books in order of how much I like them. Mm. I don't, I I just sort of did it off the top of my head. So I didn't like do a ton of deep thinking about Mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. but, uh, prisoner of Azkaban was three. No, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is book three. three. Yes. It's number one for you. Prisoner of Azkaban is the, is the top slot for me. Then half blood prince. Yeah. Then deathly hallows. Yeah. Uh, Chamber of Secrets, Ooh. Order of the Phoenix, Sorcerer's Stone, and then uh, Goblet of Fire. Mine's very similar. I'm, I'm intrigued at your positioning of Chamber of Secrets because for most people, that's like at the bottom with four. So oh, yeah, I really like it. I don't know. It There's just something fun. about Chamber that I, I've always really liked. I don't I don't know specifically what it is. And I would say that probably two and five could could flip flop. That six just has this energy to it. I love how, you know, I mean, there's a, there, as we talked about before the show, there's a lot of snogging in this book. There's a lot of like, <laughs> rom- I mean, I think that's even in the preview text. It's like, you know, there's a war going on and yet all the six years are falling in love and flirting and fighting with each other. Um, falling in love is a little, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that's what I would call it. <laughs> I think Harry and Ginny are well on their way, which also, this was a very validating book as a person who totally called it, yeah. I was a, you know, in the world of shipping, I was a Hinny shipper, which is the Harry Ginny ship. Uh, okay. I never shipped Harry Hermione because I thought they made too good of friends. And I think okay. men and women should be able to be friends without necessarily falling in love. So gotcha. okay. this was hugely validating for Wait. a number of reasons. What what was Harry and Hermione shippers? What was their harmony? Dub- harmony. Oh man. And then okay. versus the SS Heron, which is, Hermione Ron. Ron. I hate that I know all this still. But the Harmony ship lives on. There's still a lot of fan fictions and fan art out there that that just can't take the inevitable, that they're just really good friends. I think Harry and Ginny is like a power couple, you know, like later on when she's Quidditch star and he's at the he's at the Aura office and later when she becomes a reporter. It's just very good stuff. Wow. We're going. Okay, I'm so sorry. This is good. Bring it back into book six where it begins. Why don't you do our our, scripture? Yeah, why don't you do our scripture quotation today? Our scripture quotation for today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 47 through 50. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, arrest him. At once, he came up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you are here to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. 
And our quote from Nerd Cannon comes from chapter 28 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. That's the lightning struck tower. Snape gazed for a moment at Dumbledore and there was revulsion and hatred etched in the harsh lines of his face. Severus, please. Snape raised his wand and pointed it directly at Dumbledore. Avada Kedavra. So we set the precedent of doing a brief recap of each book. And I tried last time. I thought I'd be able to do it for this time, but I don't want to waste our time. So Adam, would you like to give us a quick recap of book six of Harry Potter? Uh, sure. And, I, and I'll say that I cheated a little bit on this one because before the podcast today, I read a pretty in-depth summary of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. I'm not looking at it right now, but I do mm, have, mm-hmm. I, like, I read a, you know, a pretty in-depth summary. It's okay, because um, I read but, the whole book. So if my, if I did okay, the so summary, are, it would just you, be the whole book. <laughs> You're the overachieving student. I did the Cliff Notes version and you read the whole text. This is, no, this has been my audiobook for the last month, you know? I've been doing right. a lot of walks. All right, okay, go for here it. Here we go. Here we go. Let's see here. I believe okay. in you. All right. So, Ah, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince starts at 10 Downing Street, where the Muggle Prime Minister is alerted by the former and current ministers of magic that a war is going on in the wizarding world. Meanwhile, at another part of London, Professor Severus Snape makes an unbreakable vow to help Draco Malfoy in whatever mysterious thing Draco is supposed to do. We cut to Harry Potter at the Dursleys, but he's picked up by Dumbledore real quick and they whisk off to London uh, and pick up also a new professor or really an old professor who's mm-hmm. coming back to Hogwarts. That is Horace Slughorn. He doesn't really want to come back to Hogwarts, but <laughs> Dumbledore makes him come back with the enticement of Harry Potter. Who's this famous person at Hogwarts and Slughorn likes to collect famous students Ugh, in gross. his slug club. Super After gross. that, they uh, end up back at the borough. They go to Diagon Alley and Harry uh, trails Draco Malfoy into board and Burks and figures out, of course, that Malfoy must be up to something. Mm. They make it back to Hogwarts and the new year begins. And Harry didn't think that he was going to get to take potions this year, which was going to completely destroy his hope to be an Auror. But with the new potions master, Horace Slughorn, he doesn't he doesn't need as high a grade on his OWLs. <laughs> he gets to go to potions, but he doesn't have a book. And he looks in a cupboard and he finds an old cast off textbook and it is it has written in it all of these notes and scribbles and every time harry follows one of the notes in this book his potion comes out absolutely perfectly the book belongs to somebody self-styled the half-blood prince in that first class harry uh wins a little contest and obtains a small vial of uh felix felicis uh, which is a lucky, a, a potion that makes someone lucky. All right. During sixth year, Dumbledore, unlike year five, has a lot of face-to-face conversations with Harry. Mm. Dumbledore and Harry go into the pensive many, many times in order to learn more about the backstory of Lord Voldemort. Harry goes into the pensive and first sees Voldemort's mother living in squalor, uh, her name Merope Gaunt, and she lives with her abusive father Marvolo. That's a name we've heard before. In the next memory, Harry 
sees Voldemort as a small child at an orphanage. And now we're starting to get a little bit of a uh, uh, parallel between Harry and Voldemort. And Harry is now starting to see himself in the Dark Lord. Um, but the problem with uh, Voldemort is that he is kind of a sociopath and, you know, his killing his other students' pets, which is always, you know, a, <laughs> a, a sign. Just a touch of sociopath. Yeah, uh, he we we see him. We see him at Hogwarts. He's part of the Slug Club. Uh, we see Dumbledore talking to him uh, where he wants a job at Hogwarts later on. Uh, but Dumbledore is not going to give him a job because he knows he doesn't actually want to teach. He just wants to find these magical items that he's looking for. Uh, but the main memory that Dumbledore is looking for is in the head of Horace Slughorn. And he, Dumbledore, does not have access to uh, an uncorrupted version of it. And he sets Harry on the task of getting that memory from Slughorn. The problem is that means Harry needs to cozy up and become part of the slug club. Ugh. Ugh, uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff with that. Um, during this whole year, there are lots of relationships blooming at Hogwarts and then wilting Ron mm -hmm. and Lavender mm -hmm. Brown, Ginny Ugh. and Dean Thomas, go yeah. Dean. Uh, yeah, go what? Dean. <laughs> Sorry, I guess having the same last name makes me a Dean Thomas oh, fan. Oh, I never even thought yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah. He's also great. Always been, a, always been a Dean Thomas fan. Um, and then, uh, golly, Ooh, this book is way harder to do than the other than the. No, ones you're I've doing done you're doing great. There's a lot of relationships, okay. a lot, lot of relationships, um, oceans. Yep. Uh, Malfoy's up to something. Yeah, and then of course Malfoy is up to something all year, and Harry is trying to figure out what. In the meantime, these things keep these sort of assassination attempts keep happening at Hogwarts, but they go awry. Katie Bell, one of the seekers of the Quidditch of the Gryffindor Quidditch team, gets cursed by this necklace that was supposed to go to somebody. Ron, after falling victim to a love potion, gets <laughs> uh, gets literally almost dies in Slughorn's office. Um, we figure out eventually that these gifts were on their way to Dumbledore. Somebody is trying to kill Dumbledore. That's right, right? I'm right about mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Absolutely. The sixth years have apparition lessons, but Harry's not allowed to do his test yet because he doesn't turn 17 until the summer. Lame. But uh, he does use it later. At some point late in the school year, Harry decides today is the day I am going to get the memory from Slughorn. And he drinks a little bit of that Felix Felicis potion. Finally, Slughorn gives Harry the memory. And the memory turns out to be Slughorn telling Voldemort how to make a horcrux. Bum, and a horc bum, oh yeah, bum, bum, bum. This horcrux thing that is uh, a protection uh, against death, but you have to split your soul by murdering somebody in order to make one. Yikes. All right. Um, after that, uh, Carrie's continuing to use the potion book. Uh, and even though Hermione's like, don't use that book. Um, and he and Draco get into it in the girls' bathroom where Moaning Myrtle is. And Harry uses a spell, Sectum Sempra, on Draco, almost killing Draco. And now Ugh. Snape under Snape comes in and knows exactly what Harry has been up to. Because, spoiler alert, Snape is the half-blood prince. Bum, bum, bum. All right, we continue on. Uh, Harry can't go to the last Quidditch game, but they but they win anyway because Ron plays really well. Harry comes in, and he and Ginny have their triumphant first kiss in the middle of the 
Aww. Hogwarts common room. Yay. All right. Going to the climax of the book, Dumbledore decides to take Harry with him on a quest to find one of the Horcruxes. Dumbledore has already destroyed one. It is the ring of Marvolo Gaunt, which he wears on his finger, on his hand that is blackened and deadened because of what he had to do, apparently, to destroy the ring. What we don't know at this point is that Dumbledore is very slowly dying uh, of this of a curse that Snape is helping him to uh, avert. Um, they go to the cave uh, where we we have seen it in memory before. They go across this lake that is filled with these dead bodies called Inferi, and uh, Dumbledore drinks this po- this potion over and over and over again to get to the bottom of this basin where they pull out a locket. But Dumbledore is incredibly weak. Harry apparates them back to Hogsmeade. They go up the ta- they see the dark mark in the sky. They go up the tower, and now we know what Draco Malfoy has been doing all year. He has been trying to link the vanishing cabinet from Borgen and Burks to the one in the room of requirement to allow the Death Eaters to get into the castle they get up they go up the tower and dumbledore makes harry uh immobile and speechless and he's under the invisibility cloak and he watches as draco cannot kill dumbledore but snape comes along and he does it for draco now we know what that unbreakable vow was all about Mm -hmm. snape kills dumbledore dumbledore goes over the edge of the tower it's incredibly climactic part of the story harry chases after snape trying to curse him into oblivion but snape just easily Uh, throws away all of Harry's attempted magic. Snape escapes. And the story ends with Dumbledore's funeral there Mm. on the grounds of Hogwarts. So as you noted in the summary, there's a lot going on in this book. And there's kind of that, that cool through structure of the present time of Harry wondering about who this half-blood prince is, what's Malfoy up to, does Ginny possibly like me like she used to when she was little? And then there's this delving into the pensieve and going back in time and reliving the memories of Voldemort and those all around him, seeing his troubled family that he came from, full of pure blood pride, direct Slytherin descendants, but just being the absolute worst people. And Harry starts to grow in his understanding of Voldemort. And the purpose of showing Harry all these memories is so that Dumbledore's made a couple of guesses as to what Voldemort's up to, how to defeat him. And in order to defeat him, you need to know what choices he's made, what um, goes into the decisions he's made. So in this case, it's eventually trying to figure out how many, you know, Dumbledore's pretty sure he made a Horcrux. But the question really ultimately becomes, how many Horcruxes did he make and what are they? Harry thinks, oh, they could be like a tin can or a boot. But we learn from these memories that Voldemort prized powerful magical items, had a very close tie to Hogwarts. So having objects from the founders would be very meaningful to him. So we sort of see this like magpie-like tendency. We see this troubled, pure blood um, superiority complex that Voldemort kind of inherits um, sort of indirectly without actually ever having met his mother or his grandfather. He still ends up falling in that line of, you know, proud Slytherin descendant and this self-hatred that he has for his father, who who's a muggle, who abandoned his mother, leaving her pregnant and alone and poor, um, which and then she succumbs to death and childbirth, basically out of a lack of out of heartbreak, out of lack of will of trying so again, this this book is furthering Harry's story, but we're seeing more about Voldemort, which I think makes him a lot more of maybe not sympathetic um, villain, 
because he is a sociopath and commits genocide and all of those not good <laughs> things. But he's a lot more complicated and interesting of a villain, I will say, compared to Umbridge of the last book, where she's just pretty much the worst. So we want to hit this book from a couple of different angles today. Um, why don't we start with Voldemort and uh, trauma? Uh, and then we can move from there to talking about choice and fate mm-hmm. and prophecy and, and so forth. Uh, I, I find the the chapters about Voldemort's past incredibly compelling in this story mm-hmm. because we don't get the sense that we are explaining away Voldemort's you know genocidal tendencies. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's never presented as well. Here is the reasons that he is the way he is, and therefore we should excuse him. Which I think it's which I think is what happens sometimes when we uh, when we see on the news, you know, a, a horrible crime has happened, a mass shooting, and we we see um, the the young white man who has committed this crime, and then all of a sudden on the other side of the page we see all of the reasons that he might have done this. And therefore it's probably not as bad as we think it is. And the question is always about mental health and not about access to weapons that a person should not have. Mental health is a big part of those stories, but they, it tends to be used as a way of deflecting against access to weaponry. We, we look into Voldemort's past and we see two things. We see a traumatic childhood uh, which is actually the experiences of past generations of his family mm-hmm. coming up in him, even though he actually never met them. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we see the keys to his defeat. Absolutely. You know, um, and so we can see uh, that complicated, complex character of Voldemort. But we also understand that in the end, the choices that Voldemort has made make him susceptible to the hero that Harry ends up being. And like so many tyrants, as Dumbledore will say, he literally creates his own worst enemy by, by the actions he does, by the choices he makes about interpreting the prophecy, going to kill a baby boy instead of waiting and seeing if that would actually cause him any issue. He puts a lot of stock in the prophecy and in doing so becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. He gives Harry the very tools that are needed to destroy him. And Dumbledore being able to weave together all these themes of his life to figure out what Tom Riddle thinks so so arrogantly no one could ever possibly figure out, you know, about his horcruxes. The two of them are able to get the pieces together for his downfall. And we'll see this in book seven, and I'm sure we'll talk about it. But I think because Harry knows more about Voldemort's past, he sees the similarities between them, not just the coincidental ones, like the fact that for the the ones because of, of, yeah, the parcel mouth. They kind of look alike. All right, that's 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 funny. But they're both orphans. They're both, as Voldemort would call them, half-bloods. They both have kind of a lonely attachment to Hogwarts. And I think that's becomes a pathway of empathy for Harry later on, not to excuse Voldemort, but to imagine that there could be a way out for him. In that final scene in book seven, when they're when they're having their showdown in the Great Hall, he says, you know, try for a little remorse. Basically, Harry recognizes that there's no one who's true ever truly lost if they choose not to be. Unfortunately, Voldemort chooses to continue to be lost. Um, And I think we see that theme of choice throughout all of the books, but particularly in this one and into the next one. Voldemort's traumatic upbringing reinforces all of the choices that he makes. So he 
instead of finding healthy ways of 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 confronting his earlier trauma and healing it say like through therapy or something he visits his own trauma on other people that's his that's the choice that he makes throughout his life is taking his own um he, kind of his own stuff his own baggage and throwing it on his followers on the wizarding world and saying um I don't need anybody. I am, I am a free agent. I am alone. I'm a loner. I am going to rule everything because I am the best wizard that has ever lived. And all the way back to his childhood in the orphanage, we see mm-hmm. that character. He was that child. And that's what's it's, it is sad to see him in the orphanage before he knows he's magical. He just knows he's special and he's different. Well, he sees that specialness as, as a warrant to, to, to do the, the violent acts that he commits against his fellow students or his fellow yeah. orphans. I think it's just really depressing to see a child who would torture and kill the animal, you know, the pets of his fellow orphans. Like they don't have a lot of joy in their life. It's not mm-hmm. a bad place to grow up, but it's not particularly a joyful place to grow up. He would take out petty squabbles that he has with other orphans in such violent ways. It shows that it goes back. It's deeply part of who he is in his personality. I think what we're kind of talking around the theme here of how do we confront trauma Hmm. and how do we gracefully help somebody to understand their trauma and to heal from it versus exile those, that person because of their trauma. And I think Harry, you know, we talk about him being the the flip side or the the other side of Voldemort Mm -hmm. has a lot of similar, as you said, similar backstory as Voldemort. And we see in Harry him making a different set of choices that does help to redeem Harry's trauma. And we've talked before about how traumatic the experience of living with the Dursleys is. It's written as fairly violent, not necessarily, maybe not necessarily getting like beat up, but a lot of emotional damage, you know, psychological damage. Um, and it does come out in various ways throughout the books in Harry's personality. Um, but Harry continually chooses friendship, chooses love, chooses to put himself forward in these ways that are going to both heal him and heal the wizarding world. Whereas Voldemort continually chooses the opposite of all of those things. And so they, they both start with a similar trauma, but their choices bring them completely into different, different spaces in their, in their adult lives. That's a really good point, especially given how intentional Dumbledore was about giving Tom a wide berth when he came to Hogwarts, he wasn't going to share with the other teachers, the things that he had learned by visiting the orphanage, both from the person who runs it, Mrs. Cole, or what Tom Riddle himself will admit in this moment, in this one, one unguarded moment of his life in that, you know, he has, he says more than he would ever want to in the shock of learning who he is. Dumbledore keeps that in mind. Doesn't, I don't think it shapes his treatment of Tom, he essentially gives him a blank slate should he choose to use it. And other teachers, you know, adore Tom and he uses that to his advantage rather than becoming, you know, a a genuinely good student, a a well-beloved person. He uses all of that just for his own advancement, just for his own gathering of power. It's all an act. It's, it's the, it's the classic Mm -hmm. sociopathic, uh, I'm not sure if I'm using sociopath in the correct term here, by the way, I don't know the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath. Um, that's a good point, but either way, in, in whatever 
you know, in, in whatever uh, these these uh, antisocial tendencies that Tom Riddle has, um, he is performing all the time for mm-hmm. the teachers. You know, he he is a he is a good student, but it's always in the um, it's always because he's trying to accumulate power. It's calculated. It's, the only thing. it's always cal. Yeah, it's calculated, and the only thing he's after is power and knowledge, and the because he has this plan from when he's a you know, an early teenager, he mm-hmm. already has the plan about the Horcruxes at that point. Absolutely. And before then he opened the chamber of secrets and he wants to be special. I mean, that's what he always in, in the orphanage, when he finds out that he's a wizard, he, it confirms something he always suspected that he is special, which means special in a unique sense, different from other people. Like everyone's special, but he thinks that he's the only special one. He's the only one who can find you know, the room of requirement. He's the only one who can unlock secrets of Hogwarts. It's very, has a lot of hubris as a result of this desire to feel unique and special and powerful. Um, and I wonder if part of the, you know, the anonymity of growing up in an orphanage, or if that's just, you know, he, he had this power from a very young age and discovered it and used it over other people. Mm-hmm. I think what you just hit on really is wonderful. The idea of specialness there, because Tom's is always his, his idea of being special is always self-referential. But then we, again, we, we flip back to Harry. What makes Harry special? Well, you have all of the stuff about him being the boy who lived, but over the course of the books, that is in flux. Sometimes mm-hmm. that means he's he's very special, <laughs> and sometimes it means he's undesirable number one, yeah. right? But what makes him special throughout the books is his relationships, right? It's his heart and like his love. Who it's who thinks you're special? You know, you are special mm-hmm. because Mrs. Weasley loves you. You are special Aww. because Harry, because Ron and Hermione are your best friends. That's why you're special. I mean, I couldn't care less if somebody that I don't have no don't know at all thinks I'm cool or special. Mm-hmm. I want, I, I want to have that kind of, of, of special closeness with people who are, who, who I'm actually like in relationship with, mm-hmm. you know? And, and that's why I think what Voldemort doesn't understand Riddle's specialness is, is completely self-referential. Whereas Harry's has to do with the relationships that he forms around him. This is going a little bit places maybe, but I imagine if Tom Riddle were looking in the mirror of Arised, the, the mirror that shows you your heart's desire, he would see that the statues that are erected later in the ministry when he takes over of, you know, magic is might with the witch and wizard powerful on thrones, crushing the backs of, you know, dirty muggles. He would see himself, whereas Harry only ever sees relationship. And again, because they both get a chance to start over at Hogwarts, they have a choice Harry chooses to make friends and is delighted for the first time ever in his life to have people he can rely on and trust and have a mutual relationship. And Tom chooses power. He chooses isolation with only ever minions, never friends. And they both have an opportunity. And I do think we, you know, we see choice as being a major theme in this book. And we can go into that now with, um, in terms of our, our nerd quote and our scripture quotation about the choices around Snape of Dumbledore of Harry and of Malfoy, all of those kind of weaving together in this book. As we know, Draco has this task. He's been set by Voldemort as a product of his upbringing. He's put in close proximity to the dark Lord. 
And since his father is the one who had a major screw up in book five, it's now being placed on Draco's shoulders to undertake this mission of killing Dumbledore. And there, basically everyone except for Draco knows it's a suicide mission. He's not going to be able to do this. He's going to die. And it's as a punishment for his father. Um, and Snape makes a choice to work for Dumbledore to follow his orders. Um, but in doing so has to be supporting Malfoy in this quest that he's on. And the reason that he's able to do this without harming himself, without feeling like he's betraying Dumbledore is that he knows that Dumbledore is slowly dying and, and Dumbledore wants to choose a death at the hands of Snape, who knows that it would be a mercy than, at, than to tarnish Malfoy's soul by having him an innocent killing Dumbledore. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a lot of convoluted plot around the elder wand that we don't know about yet, oh, yeah, we don't which know. I don't really want to talk about, no. but I just want to sort of set that there, that there's some stuff about who is actually in charge of the elder wand that is all playing within this, that we won't learn about until book seven. And even then it's still kind of confusing. Oh, that's right. But the, but I think you're right that Dumbledore's goal here is to keep Draco from basically fracturing his soul. Mm-hmm. by becoming a murderer. Dumbledore is still, you know, he loves Draco, I think just as much as he loves Harry, mm-hmm. you know, even though he's been a lot more, a lot closer to Harry, he, I think he loves all of the students in Hogwarts, you know, because that's just the kind of person that Dumbledore is as this, as this teacher, he has a heart for his students and he absolutely does not want to see Draco fall victim to Voldemort's evilness. He He, he doesn't want Draco to become this evil creature. And so we know we know at the end of the story that Snape has been helping Dumbledore stay alive all year so that Dumbledore can can train Harry up in in the uh, in Voldemort's past. Um, but the whole time, of course, because we're within Harry's perspective, we see the worst about Snape all the time mm-hmm. it, because we're reading it from Harry's perspective. Um, and even in the end, we get um, the scene on the on the, the lightning struck tower. And the reason that we read the quotation from the passion gospel of Judas kissing Jesus is that um, I see Judas and Jesus uh, as parallels to Snape and Dumbledore mm-hmm. where um, it, Carrie and I were discussing this before the podcast. <laughs> and then we decided, let's just talk about it in the podcast. Oh yeah. Um, I don't know if this is a radical view or not, but I've always thought of, of Judas as, as Jesus's most faithful disciple because he undertakes this mission that has to happen in order for the story to continue. Um, and, and it's a really painful mission mm-hmm. uh, for Judas to go and, and do that betrayal. But if you read John's uh, account of the gospel, Jesus basically puts himself in Judas's hands. He literally hands him a piece of bread you could even say Eucharistic bread, you know, the, mm. the body of Christ. And he, he hands it to him and he says, go do what you're going to do. Uh, and, and, and then Judas does it. And I wonder if other, what some of the other disciples wouldn't have had the kind of the, the strangely, the courage to go and <laughs> to go about doing that betrayal um, that Judas ends up doing. Uh, because up until that point, he's one of the disciples. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a little bit of character assassination around him, like stealing from the purse. But I think that's all fairly, like, uh, it just seems extraneous to me. Especially in, in John's gospel, right? Jesus is so much the master of his own destiny. He is, he is like, he knows what's happening. He's not 
he's not looking for the voice coming from heaven to lift himself up. He's like, no, this, this voice coming from heaven is for all of you so that you can believe that is the John that that's the Jesus in John's gospel. So especially with Judas, you're right of being part of this plan. I guess it depends on if you think that Jesus actually had to die or not in order for the story of salvation to continue. And that's maybe a bigger theme, but taking that to heart that, it does, you know, if, if that is indeed a role that had to be played, it would take a lot of courage and strength. And we see this so painfully in, in later Harry Potter books of the kind of inevitability of Snape, but he chooses that destiny. We see Snape early on when he's a Death Eater, feeling like he kind of has to, like he's fallen, you know, he's in Slytherin House, the Dark Lord is rising again. Um, he's recruiting followers and Snape has this interest in the dark arts. So it's almost like inevitable. Of course, Snape, you know, that weird guy from high school mm-hmm. went off and became a Death Eater. Yeah, that guy, they, we wore the trench coat in, in the yeah. hallways. Yeah, yeah. like th- that's that's a stereotype that's definitely in there. Like it, it makes sense for Snape to go there, especially given that he's been impacted by the rhetoric of his housemates um, to be hating half-bloods and muggles and whatnot. And then he makes a choice to get out of that, to make, to ally himself with Dumbledore. And what, I wonder if the change, the the turning point was when he reported the prophecy to Voldemort, which got his love, the love of his life, Lily killed. That was, and again, it felt like almost inevitable. He had to report on what he overheard. He had to report the prophecy and the prophecy is what led to his transformation. And now he's taking his destiny into his own hands. He's choosing a different path. He's place, He's choosing to place himself at the mercy of Dumbledore. And every moment since then, he's making choices. He's calculating on how to play this most difficult role of double agent, of you know, really being Dumbledore's man, but making it seem like he's betraying him at every turn and undermining his work and having to calculate every decision in order to fulfill that. He very much is a character of choice. Um, I I see that in Harry and Malfoy as well. Um, When we are discussing the prophecy in the middle of the book and Harry's like, you know, I've got to, I've got to kill Voldemort. And Dumbledore's like, got to, you don't got to do anything. I actually have that page up right here. Mm, Come on at me. Bring it out. Dumbledore says got to, of course you've got to, but not because of the prophecy because you yourself will never rest until you've tried. We both know it. Imagine, please, just for a moment that you had never heard that prophecy. How would you feel about Voldemort now? You say, I'd want him to end and I'd want me to be the one to do it because of of the impact Voldemort's had on his life. And I love, right at the the close of that chapter, Harry finally understands. He says, um, it was, he thought, the difference between being dragged into the arena to face a battle to the death and walking into the arena with your head held high. Some people perhaps would say there is little to to choose between the two ways. But Dumbledore knew, and so do I, thought Harry with a rush of fierce pride, and so did my parents, that there was all the difference in the world. So, So tying it into his parents who... They would have been murdered regardless on the path between Voldemort and Harry on the night that they died. He would have killed them no matter what. But by standing up and choosing to fight, choosing to face their deaths with courage and with strength, they provide the protection. Lily's death provides the protection that Harry needs to succeed. So it is Harry will eventually walk into the forest and face his destiny, but he chooses to do that. Yeah, there's there's not a compulsion from Voldemort. It's always Harry's decision. And 
again, Harry is is making choices throughout the books that lead him to that ultimate destiny. And that actually gives us an, an idea of, of how to look at fate as a series of choices that we make that all, you know, add up there. There's an aggregate that brings you along a certain path that the path isn't set for you. It's that as you walk it, you are creating the path that you're on. And I think that when we, when we look at that from a Christian standpoint, and we think, okay, well, like, are we just pieces on a chessboard that God is moving around or whatever? Wizards chess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're always beating the crap out of each other. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, is God just moving us around on a chessboard? If that's the case, then why is there so much horribleness in the world? Or are we, and we've, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, are we walking with God along our paths, making choices day in and day out that create the people that we are becoming. It's not that we're fulfilling a particular destiny that has been set. It's that we are creating that destiny as we choose things. And and I find that very comforting because it means that if we start making bad choices, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are now fully on a path that leads to evil or whatever, or darkness or whatever. It's that we can change our minds again and get back on the right path. Uh, And that, and Jesus talks about that all the time. You know, I am Mm. the way, the truth and the life. That way is a road. It's literally the word road in Greek. You know, it's not like a special thing. He just says the street, it's the street. So the, the road that we are walking, we are following Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. I love that word pioneer in the letter to the Hebrews, because I always, it, it, another translation is trailblazer. Mm-hmm. And I, I really love that translation of it, that Jesus is the trailblazer of our faith. The one who's hacking away at the weeds and the, the, the vines that are along the trail that we are walking. And there's that great image that crops up all over the place that you, you see it in sermons and, and other in other places as well, that our faith is like, um, it, it's, it's like headlights on a car that are, that are shining in front of you. Mm-hmm. They don't shine on your destination, but they shine on the path that gets you to your destination. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think is the choices that we're making that, uh, all add up into our lives. And that's what I see in Harry Potter is continued sets of choices that create the character And we see this, again, so many ways Malfoy is the foil for Harry. So Harry is all about his choices. He's learning that, you know, there's no such thing as like a prophecy. He doesn't have to do anything. And Malfoy's been handed a set of circumstances, as we all are. Malfoy's kind of stink, you know? He's He's being raised in a house of Death Eaters. The Dark Lord gives him this task. And when he's on the top of the tower and Dumbledore is offering him a way out. Dumbledore saying, you know, we can hide you. We can get your mother safe. We can get your father safe. Once he leaves Azkaban, Malfoy says, no one can help me. He told me to do it or he'll kill me. I've got no choice. Mm -hmm. And I, again, this is one of those things that if I just read the book enough times, Malfoy will break down and cry and release Dumbledore from his hold and they'll, you know, he'll get hidden and whatever and and Dumbledore will live and everything will be fine. Um, It's not going to be that way because Malfoy feels like he has no choice. I think that's what's sad about Malfoy. It's like, not even like he's actively choosing evil. He's passive on his own destiny, on his own path. And yet inaction is still action. Choosing to not make a choice is a choice in and of itself. It's a choice to accept the circumstances you've been handed, as we all are, and in his case, to follow a path 
that was set up by his upbringing, but that he still does choose to walk on. And that's, I think, what Ma what makes Malfoy a very sad character. Whereas we see Snape, who was handed a similar set of circumstances, mm, was mm -hmm. around a bunch of Death Eaters, maybe felt like it was kind of inevitable that he'd end up supporting Voldemort, but then makes a choice to turn. And that's another theme we see in Harry Potter, a brown remorse, but then also in Christianity that we're never truly lost. We can always, if we're on a path, a dark path that is harmful to ourselves and others, we can always choose to turn and repent and change the way we are. Um, we can be like Snape in that way. Um, we can be like Harry who chooses, who could have easily used his power like Voldemort on the path of violence and terror, but instead chooses the goodness and love and path of relationship. And you're never, it's always possible to have remorse and to turn and to change. I've always loved the fact that when you're thinking about that image of the path, if you're on a path leading to, you know, death dealing circumstances, mm -hmm. uh, if you turn around, then all of a sudden it's the right path. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it amazing? Or it'll I mean, lead it, to it, the it, other right yeah, path. Or it, like, eventually it will, the, that tributary of whatever, you know, river you're, you're mm, following mm -hmm. will get back under the right path. There's something about turning around and all of a sudden you're now, you might be really far down it. I mean, that's, we, we've talked about recovery in, in this podcast before, mm -hmm. but a lot of what recovery is, is turning around on that path and then walking back up that path. I'm reminded of the fact that, you know, we have all these God is shepherd images, you know, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Like the, the shepherd's crook <laughs> was kind of a weapon intended to like yank the sheep I mean, part of the the club part is like a big club to like club wolves over the noses, right? Because there's things on the on the path that are attacking the sheep. But the the crook is like to yank them back on the path. Um, and I think sometimes you know, staying close to your shepherd, and the way of faith is allowing yourself to occasionally be yanked back onto the path by the crook. By the crook. Um, I wish there was maybe a little, bit, but if too much of that, and you completely at the mercy of the shepherd. We do have choices to move forward. And occasionally I think faith and our lives of faith and our relationships with one another provide a little nudge or maybe a more forceful nudge than we might be comfortable with. You're, you're reminding me of uh, John chapter 10, where um, Jesus talks about being the, about the good shepherd yeah. and uh, leading the sheep from the sheepfold. The word in Greek that is that is used when talking about um, bringing them out of the sheepfold is actually the same word that we use for casting out demons. Um, hmm. So there's something there's something about being ejected from the sheepfold. <laughs> You know, it's not because in the sheepfold, you're safe and you're, you're, right. you know, and you're secure, but there isn't any food there. That's mm. not where you, you eat. That's not where you live your life. And so the shepherd sees you perhaps maybe in uh, complacency or apathy within that sheepfold and yanks you out of it. I like you that. Know, casts you out, literally casts you out of the sheepfold into the world because later in that same scripture passage, Jesus says, I came to bring life and bring it in and so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Mm -hmm. You know, abundance doesn't happen in that sheepfold, however safe it is. Abundance happens out in, on the field, that green pasture as Psalm 23 talks about. Between your Greek and my Hebrew, we're a pretty good team. <laughs> there you go. Let's get back to, let's get talk a little bit more about, um, you said something earlier about Malfoy and Snape. Yeah. And I think that there's something really interesting to unpack a little bit more there um, because Snape 
we, we, and again, we don't really know this until the very end of the Harry Potter books when we get a huge memory about Snape. Lord dump, uh, as they the, call the, it. The lore dump about Snape. Um, but you're, we see him changing his allegiance after his, after his decision cost Lily Potter her life. And that is the moment where he says, enough. I can't live this life anymore. Yep. Draco never has that moment hmm. in, in the books or, it, you know, I, moments are presented to him to say enough, but he never actually takes it. And I, and I don't really know why is it because, I mean, I guess the closest he gets to it is in Malfoy Manor, which we'll talk about in book seven, mm. where he, he knows it's Harry, but he doesn't like, he doesn't like say it's Harry. Right. You he know? kind of like covers and obfuscates and yeah, but he never does what Snape does, which is completely change sides. Um, <sighs> and, and I always want him to, yeah. and you're right. He's boxed into that because every choice he makes seems to reinforce the other choices he's made before. And there's like a sunk cost fallacy in that where he, he doesn't mm -hmm. think he can make a different choice because he's on a particular I've gone this a path. Far. Yeah, I've gone this far. I might as well keep going, which is great if you're on a life-giving path. I think he's, I mean, I think he's weak. I think he's a weak character. Um, mm -hmm. I really do that he, he's a coward who, even if you happen to be on the life-giving path, you still have to make active choices to remain on it because mm -hmm. there are evil things at work in our world. There is sin and corruption that p pulls us apart and pulls us from the path. I don't think you can just accidentally stumble your way along the path of life. And we especially see that in Harry Potter, that all of the people who are choosing to fight Voldemort, to stand up for goodness and justice and diversity and equality, all have to make those choices actively and sacrifice a lot. So Draco never has that rock bottom moment that Snape has that moment of clarity, perhaps on, on the hillside when he's grieving and wild with anger and sadness and loss. But Draco does have all these options in front of him. And I think it's because he's a coward. He's just, he's too afraid to make any choice um, good for good or for bad. But again, not making a choice is still a choice. And the choices he makes ends up in the, what's sad is like, he ends up with a perfectly fine life. Um, you know, he, he gets married, he has a child, a little Scorpius, you know, he still probably feels like a passive kind of person adrift among a sea of his own of, of other people's making he's he's his path has been chosen for him by his powerful father and he never questions that path as much as it's hurting him whereas you see a character like Sirius he mm, was mm -hmm. given a set of circumstances and he chose to be different. I mean, part of it's like in a snarky, like 11 year old way, like, hey, I'm going to be different from you. And then later in like teenage rebellion, you know, I'm going to have pictures of muggles on my walls and whatnot. But he made, he made a choice too, to be different from the family around him because he did not want to be like them. And his brother, R.A.B., mentioned in this book, Regulus, was the perfect little pure blood who follows, follows what mommy and daddy wants for him. And he also later will make a choice to change that. It's it's hard to stay in Harry Potter six because mm -hmm. so much of it looks forward if you've already read book seven, and a lot yeah. of it looks backwards as well. It's it's a really interesting transition into that final 
into that final yeah. book. We wouldn't be having um, this discussion if we hadn't read Seven. I mean, remember when this book came out and there was like the Snape kills Dumbledore on yep. page 596. And like, we all thought he was the worst. Yeah. Um, I had I had hopes. I actually had, I did think that he loved Lily. I had that figured out, but I may have dreamt it. <laughs> you can cut that. <laughs> right. But we, we didn't know about Snape's ultimate redemption arc or that he had already kind of been redeemed. We did think he was the betrayer Judas, not necessarily the acting out the plan of salvation Judas. Anything else we want to we want to touch on? I think we've gotten the big the big high points. Um, this book is you're right. It's hard to keep in this book because so much of it is like ramping up for the wild ride that is seven. Why don't we wrap it up like this? Um, we've talked before, even just in the last couple episodes in our season three and three quarters about Harry being a hero and wanting to do everything on his own. Mm-hmm. And then today we talked about the fact that his choices keep leading him, his trauma leads him into relationships with other people and he keeps choosing to be in relationships. So I'm not saying that that I'm ignoring what I said in, in earlier podcasts. It's that he's a complex character <laughs> and is, we yeah. have those things in tension with each other. That he he his desire to be in relationships with people makes him want to protect them mm-hmm. and take away their choices in his desire to protect them. And one thing we learn is that he can't take away their choices. He's not willing to take the power that Voldemort takes in order to take away other people's choices. Right. Yeah, because that's what freedom is. Freedom is the ability to choose things. I think we'll see at the end of this book him choosing to protect Ginny by breaking up with her, um, even though she knows she's just she's going to wait for him. She's not going to. That's not the end. Um, But he thinks, you know, I am going to choose a life of isolation and cut myself off from my loved ones in order to do this horrible task that I I have ahead. And luckily he's got at least one friend, (laughs) two at some times who will choose to be with him no matter what. And they don't, and they, and they say, no, we're coming. That is our choice. Mm -hmm. We're going to come with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians and on Twitter at nerdychristians. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on my website, adamthomas.net. All seven of my fantasy novels are up on that website, so check them out. And you can always find both Carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, which will be season four coming soon part of being human means we have choices free will our destiny is our own we can walk the path before us cowering and dragging our feet or with our heads held high may god illumine the way for you nudging you back on the path of life when you stray and bless you on your journey amen